the show you need to get what you desire by avoiding the mistakes made by others before you. Learn the stories and journeys of what success looks like to find the freedom you deserve while thriving with your best life. And now I present to you the one, the only Rapid Results with Andrew Wise. Welcome back to another episode of Rapid Results. We have the wonderful Taylor here. And in case you don't know who this amazing guy Taylor is, a little bit about him. He is the co-CEO and co-founder at Kinship. Prior to co-founding Kinship, Taylor worked at Athletes First, an NFL agency where he was responsible for marketing on behalf of NFL stars. Those included Aaron Rodgers, Clay Matthews, Deshaun Watson. From Athletes First, he transitioned to the digital marketing side of the influencer marketing space by building out the influencer department at Common Thread Collective. This is a growth agency mainly focusing on Facebook advertising. Here, he was responsible for creating influencer partnerships on behalf of 30-plus brands running Facebook ads in tandem with influencers. His holistic learning and experience within this space have led him to a greater understanding of influencer marketing, and he hopes to share with others who aim to leverage influencers for the growth of their business. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Taylor. And Taylor, tell us what is the biggest, most badass business accomplishment, professional accomplishment you're most proud of? Yeah. Thank you for the intro too. I think the one that we try to articulate most or put on display and it's really to paint a story too we like to say hey we've through our philosophy of influencer marketing which i'm sure we'll dive into today it's a little bit of a black ball so we'd love listeners to be able to have actionable takeaways from this time to go implement themselves but it's for any stage of uh, any business and so case studies wise what we're most proud of what we put you know our stamp on uh, helping a brand go from a zero to a million in four months through influencers alone. That's one. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, helping uh, increase M&M's household name brand, big brand, euro euro sales increased by 457% through this influencer uh, strategy. So it's for everyone at any stage of the business, startup, zero to a million, four months, M&M's household name brand, everybody in between. So that's kind of like, if I was to brag about something, I'd put those on display for that reason alone though. Oh my gosh, that is so incredible. And are you even 30 yet? 28. Oh, my partner well, we is do. 30 though. <laughs> so that is is so awesome and so crazy. And, and I like to take people on the superhero journey. So obviously you didn't wake up one day and then say, I'm going to push a button and then a million dollars is going to appear into my client's account. Tell us more about the backstory journey, how you even got to learning what it takes to do these million dollar launches, 400% increases for some of the world's <laughs> biggest brands. Like Tell us more about the journey and the history that led up to these accomplishments. Yeah, yeah. Great question. Started about 10 years, 10 years ago. I was fortunate to play football. Well, somewhat uh, play. They gave me a jersey at UCLA. Um, one of my teammates uh, at the time, I knew quickly I, I probably wasn't playing the NFL. So I had to uh, redirect my focus elsewhere to figure out what I wanted to do in my life. But fortunate for me, luck of the draw, P. Diddy's son was, played my position and was in my position group. So he's, you know, somewhat of a B-list influencer himself. Did the typical college kid thing, started an events company with him as the face. He'd post on, you know, organically on his Instagram. The algorithm on Instagram was a little different back then, could really push the needle. And every revenue that was, every dollar of revenue that was generated was off the backs of him just posting. So not to say that's like, that's where I learned all my strategies and whatnot. That's just what sparked my interest in the mm -hmm. space. Um, from there, from college, Stopped doing the events company thing. Went to an NFL marketing agency like you touched on. Think Aaron Rodgers, State Farm commercials. That's a lot of what we were doing. So very much so the so macro. You, you helped write some of the State Farm commercial stuff? Put together those deals. Yeah, like that's what our agency was doing. At that time, wow. it was my first gig. So like, am I spearheading that deal? No chance. <laughs> You're the no. guy who made discount double check happen? That was me. <laughs> you heard it here first. No, that was that term was not me. But that's well, kind of the things the that we're doing. Though. Gotcha. That's the that's the sort of things that we're doing and help helping alongside. But no, that was definitely not my idea. Uh, okay. um, <laughs> everyone would know that it would be in my Twitter bio. Discount double check guy. <laughs> but facilitating those deals, having a seat at that table, yes, one hundred percent. From there, again, macro influencer type thing. And within that realm, you, you really lack attribution and visibility and attribution and generating ROI. So like, hey, these guys paid Aaron Rodgers $50,000 for a one-off tweet. I, I, who knows you know, what that tweet made them. And like attribution at that level 
it's just they're selling stardom. They're not selling ROI. So you'd get a lot like a one-off customer. There wasn't many repeat customers unless it was like, you know, the Procter and Gambles of the world where they have just an infinite budget. And this was just, you know, one of the buckets they're throwing money at type thing where ROI wasn't as like, I need it. Whereas a lot of startups, they do. And that's what I wanted to figure out. So from Athletes First transition to Common Thread Collective, growth marketing agency where attribution and visibility and attribution was everything. Coming alongside brands and helping them better understand, hey, through these efforts, this is what you're actually making off of it. So dove into that, started running paid media on Facebook, built out the influence department there. Three years ago, Common Thread Collective seed funded us and started Kinship. And that's what brought us here today. So a lot of fails, a lot of learning, uh, a lot of figuring out what doesn't work. Because influencer marketing, when people think about it, it's a black ball. They don't really know what to do with it. They don't really know how to make an effective strategy. And a lot of people just think of like Kim Kardashian promoting like Spanx or something. And that's Mm -hmm. just not it. And they just think of it as vanity metrics, engagement likes. That's also not it. Uh, This can be a definite acquisition channel for your brand that can generate real ROI. So I probably went longer than five minutes, a little bit long-winded, but that's the background. That's what brought us here today. Surprising that was only like two minutes, but wow. So casually mentioned you got seed funding. So Common Thread Collective, is that a a venture capitalist firm? No, they're actually a a growth agency. So growth agency in the sense they do like Facebook ads, Amazon, Google, they do studio content shoots. Just They're like in a marketing arm, like an AOR for, for other brands. And so you made it sound like that's so casual. And I guess like, you know, that's the thing about the startup world is some people are like, oh, never take investor money. Some people are like, oh, you have to take investor money. How did you go about knowing, oh, yeah, we got to go after investor money and we're going to get it. Tell, tell us about that process. No, I lucked into it, quite honestly. And if you talk to enough entrepreneurs that are actually honest... I looked into it. So Common Thread Mm -hmm. Collective was the previous agency I worked at. So that's who Mm -hmm. ultimately seed funded us, right? And I was the entrepreneurial apprentice, quote unquote, to the managing partner at Common Thread Collective, Taylor Holiday. After being under him, he was really like, hey, you should go do this. And he planted the idea of it. We recognized the opportunity in the space. And I was doing like, the I built out the influence department there that and I ran paid social and through that, we like saw a unique opportunity here to go launch a business. But he planted the seed of the idea and then paired me up with my partner, Cody, who was building out the influence department, at a brand called Kalo, doing incredibly well. Brought us together, seed funded us, and we were on our way. But as you heard, it wasn't like, hey, me, Cody, let's get together. Let's go pursue this. He planted the idea. He sent us the money and sent us on our way. So lucked into it. I'll say opportunity is just where luck and hard work meet. And I was fortunate to have that luck though. Preparation meeting opportunity. hundred percent. That's right. That's right. Um, and then what about you? You mentioned, uh, so I, I like how it sounds like you're a very honest guy. You're authentic, you're genuine, you're real. And you mentioned, Oh yeah, I did these accomplishments, but I also failed a lot. So what, what were some of those things that you, you quote unquote failed at when it came to influencer marketing and things you wish you had learned earlier what you learned didn't work yeah i mean as you'll hear in our philosophy we're not big proponents of like the pay for post model we actually a lot of the time say it's a dead model so lots of failures there like back in the athletes first days again watching people pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to these household name you know players and even honestly like tier two level names and b level players um you'll see that a lot of the time they, the ROI just wasn't there. And again, there wasn't repeat customers. They would come once unless it was a Procter and Gamble household name brand that just was filling a bucket and then they'd be off. And then even at the common thread in the common thread days, you know, a brand coming to work with us and, you know, had a budget of 50 K, whatever it is to spend on influencers. And if it was on micro influencers, still the pay for post model just wouldn't pan out in a way where they would get the ROI that they're looking for from those organic posts going live. So, I mean, biggest learning lessons along the way, athletes first, Hey, I'm much bigger proponent of micros instead of macros. Reason being, micro influencers have greater reach, greater engagement, greater conversion rate, and more niche audiences to align your brand with on a per follower basis. And when you work with 10 micro influencers in comparison to one macro, the aggregate following is the same, but you can get so much more out of that. And the price point is like one one hundredth, one one tenth. So 
and you get way more content to repurpose across all your channels. You get 10x. So that's a lesson I learned there from failing a lot, from just kind of wasting money on these the people I was actually representing. So there was a lot of banging my head against the wall there. And then at Common Thread, realizing the real value of influencers is not a mechanism, using them as a mechanism of distribution. Organic is great. Like them posting to their organic audience, that's awesome. And that's great. And there's a long tail effect to that, right? If you continuously do it or organic and really bring in ROI. But their main value at is content creation, tapping on them as content creators to then repurpose that content across your own distribution handles. Or it can do a lot more for you specifically like in Facebook ads per se, where creative is king. And that's really what's going to scale your efforts up. So long-winded answers, two main things, micro instead of macro from failing a lot content creation over, you know, a mechanism of distribution as the main value add and working with these influencers too. Oh, so what, what's the difference between content creation and, and distribution? So when you think of an influencer, right, a lot of people think about, oh, this is so great. We're going to get Andrew Wise. He has 10,000 followers on Instagram, whatever it is, right? We're going to get this guy to post on his Instagram organically or on his TikTok or on his YouTube and that distribution to his audience is going to be the value add that we're getting. Mm-hmm. It's going to be that post going to his audience. And from that audience, seeing that post, people are going to purchase our product. But in reality, that's the cherry on top to us. That's the gravy. That's that's good to have. That's awesome. And again, there's a long tail effect to that as you continuously do that. Or if you onboard people to affiliate programs, like you can really build out a robust you know, program that will lend itself to real ROI. But the biggest value add is, hey, Andrew, you just posted that content and distributed it to your audience. I'm going to take that content now, get usage rights to it, repurpose it to my audiences. And I can take that way further through like Facebook ads per se, where I'm not just limited to the amount of people that see that follow you. I can give it to Facebook, scale it to as many people as possible where it's going to convert people at a much lower CPA. And that's just one example. You can repurpose in landing pages, TikTok ads, emails across the board. We just see it most effective and go the furthest in Facebook ads. Interesting. Well, and I saw your, your Twitter thread, you're doing uh, you, uh, are you going away from Facebook ads completely and focusing only on TikTok ads? Or are you still mixing and matching? No, or? no, no, both. Uh, do both. And Facebook is still far TikTok's like the sexy thing right now. Facebook is by far above and beyond more sophisticated as a machine learning system to find the cheapest customers for your business from a paid media perspective. On the organic side, I would never activate influencers on Facebook specifically. Facebook owns Instagram, still activate them on Instagram. But TikTok, organically speaking, is the best platform to activate influencers on, again, organically. So, I mean... Most social media algorithms, like on Instagram per se, you know, you have an audience of 100,000 followers. When you post, the algorithm limits you to, on average, reach like 10,000, 10% of the people that follow you. And then 2 to 3% will engage. Whereas on TikTok, the algorithm's set up to just honor videos that are getting watched, like they're getting watched, they're getting viewed. And so you can not only surpass that 10% of your audience. And not even that, just that your entire audience and then go viral. Um, so it's much more inclined to reach a lot more people on the organic side of things with TikTok social media algorithm and how it's set up in comparison to anything else. Uh, we're going through your website, like you said, influencer marketing is a hot topic. Um, mm. And I don't think, and obviously you're 10 years in this industry officially. 10 years in the space. Yeah. I mean, it started out with him in my room at 18. I think we launched that company at 19. So I'm 28 now. That's to be 20. Yeah. And like they say, it's like, what, 10 years to be an overnight success, right? And so... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So it, it's cool to learn yeah, the, the ins and outs. Um, and I know I have a friend and colleague who has also influenced a marketing agency. And I know, like you said, most people think that way. Like, oh my gosh, if I pay LeBron James $20,000 to do one post about my product, like I'm going to get rich. And you're right. like, well... No. <laughs> no. <laughs> not, not quite. Um, what are your thoughts on, on Cameo? You know what I'm talking about, right? When you pay like $200 for a celebrity to do like a three minute segment about your product. Um, have you seen any success stories with those? And I'm curious about your take on that. I mean, I guess I can just give you what it is we do. Cause again, we're just not big proponents of pay for post. And yeah. I, I kind of mm-hmm. categorize that into that group. And are there case studies for it? For sure. I'm not going to say like there aren't case studies within the pay for post model no, or within this cameo example. Yeah. 
I definitely think there's a place for it as well. But in the way that we initiate relationships with influencers, we're not big proponents of it. And so instead, we are big proponents of seeding, a philosophy of seeding. So like, Andrew, if you're someone that I'm interested in building a relationship with that's on Cameo, and maybe that's an end goal that I ultimately want to do with you and activate you in that way, I'm going to start mm-hmm. with seeding. So when we do this with clients, like we identify and reach out to 500 influencers per month. Wow. And how we identify them, we use a platform called Tagger, just a great tool if anybody wants to go use that. Free tools, TikTok Creator Marketplace, Facebook Brand Clouds Manager, free tools right there. Going after quantitative alignment there, Who's your customer? Align the influencers with that. Best video content creators. Once you have the people that you want to go after, the people that you're interested in, again, ultimately potentially want to do a cameo video with, we reach out with a message not saying, hey, we want to pay you to post and do this thing on cameo. We start with, hey, Andrew, I think you're a great brand fit. Absolutely love the content you consistently put out. I think you'd love our product. We want to send it to you, no strings attached. And what we mean by that is we have no expectation of you to post whatsoever. Just send me your address. We'll get this right out to you. So very uh, counter cultural. It's just not really in line with most of the marketplace, right? But of course, we do have expectations. Otherwise, this wouldn't be a service. Me and Andrew wouldn't be talking right now. Um, This just wouldn't be a thing. So when we do this, out of 500, typically a minimum of 100 opt-in to receive product. And then out of the 100 that opt-in to receive product, a minimum of 30 influencers end up posting of their own free will, free of cost, no contractual obligation, just because they loved you, your brand, your product, how you started the relationship. And they do so on average two to three times each. 30 influencers, 60 to 90 unique assets posted. You get usage rights to that and you repurpose into paid. This is where we say the pay for post model is dead. Any influencer marketing agency in the world where you want 30 influencers posting 60 to 90 assets in total and you get usage rights to that content to repurpose into paid media or across your other channels, that's a 30K fee. You just got that for the cost of sending out 100 products. So unless your products are, you know, the cogs of $300 or more, $300, I believe, times 130K, boom, that's the only way it's even equal, like an equal price point. And I would still recommend this strategy if your cogs are $300 because you know they're genuine advocates and you know this content's authentic. It's not transactional. There was no incentive for them to post outside of them just loving your product. And you want to identify people that genuinely do. Otherwise, it's just a fraudulent ecosystem. So another long-winded, but after we do that, then we'll do like a cameo video. Hey, Andrew was one of these people that posted free of cost. They proved He proved to be a genuine product adopter, lover. His content worked well organically. We repurposed it in paid media. It worked well there too. This guy's worth going the next step with and paying them to do that cameo video. Uh, but then and only then. So there's just an order of operations and made sure I wanted to touch on that lengthy no, <laughs> operation this, this before doing that. So fascinating that after you get the influencer to post the product for free, then you offer to pay them a, a separate cameo video. Yeah, it's just whatever we want to do next. To be honest, we don't play too much in the cameo world. Um, the biggest platform we're activating people on as of right now, where the biggest opportunity is, is TikTok. Uh, and then we're repurposing that content into Facebook ads. And so once someone proves to, like we have this like pyramid, right? Start with seeding. Okay, you go up that pyramid, you go to organic post. They prove to post free of cost. They prove to be a genuine advocate. Okay, now we onboard them to, uh, we get usage rights to their content and put it in paid media. How does their content perform in paid media? We onboard them to an affiliate program at that point too. They're already posting about you for free. Why wouldn't they want to make some money? It's kind of a no-brainer. Uh, and then from there, who's working best organically on the affiliate side of things? Who's working best in paid media content-wise? Okay, now we're at the part of the pyramid where we're at brand ambassador, brand ambassador. Now we're willing to pay money to activate them on, but we're probably looking to activate them on TikTok and YouTube on the organic side of things, and then continuously repurposing content to paid media on Facebook. So that's where a lot of our philosophy resides. That's where we think the biggest opportunities are and kind of the order of operations to it. So Cameo, I'm sure there are benefits, but it also goes to, we do this a lot of the time with micros, um, and we, then we scale up to macros because mm. you, you, you got to figure out what works before you're going to invest that type of money. And I know you just already alluded to it. Cameo is super cheap, but still figure out what works <laughs> for you before you go and try to put a face to the, to your brand. And then I'm curious, uh, and you can share whatever you want, but 
what from your side of things, like what does that pay look like? Do you get paid on percentage of sales? Do you get fee up front plus percentage of sales? The owner of a company like this, like if someone wants to get into influencer marketing and start their own influencer marketing company, like how should they how should they know how much to get paid and, and all that? If you're an influencer or if you're a brand? If you're another Taylor and you're like, and you're, there's another 18 year old kid who's like, I want to be exactly like Taylor. Like how would they go about? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So always start, I mean, you're looking for, you're trying to build relationships in the right way, right? Mm-hmm. But you're ultimately going after, you're trying to find people that are easy to work with, that aren't charging, you know, an arm and a leg, are willing to grant usage rights for free. So ideally you get all the upfront stuff for free. Like, And again, when you reach out to 500, you'll end, told, typically end up with 30, 60 to 90 uniques. All of that is true. From there though, again, the affiliate program, that's the first form of payment that's going out. That's step two. Um, and I would... Uh, in your compensation model of your affiliate program, offer something that's lofty, like go high. Uh, mm-hmm. You want to stand out. Like the standard rate people offer is like fifteen percent. You know, um, with a day or thirty day, you know, attribution window of what they get accredited to for sales. I would. And bump do you just that. trust that the brand you're working with they'll they'll pay you out of out of honesty, essentially? Well, you set it up. So we recommend working with Refersion. That's like on the back end platform, and it's, it's automatic payments. It's called Refersion, R-E-F-E-R-S-I-O-N. And they have a link that's generated through Refersion and it sets up automatic payments. So both parties have visibility into it. It's very transparent. Um, so you get accredited your sales. But at the end of the day, we all know attribution can be a little bit of... Uh, there might be some miss of attribution, uh, especially in post-IOS 14 here. Um, so that's also you know, something to keep in mind, you can afford to give them a lofty percentage. So I typically tell brands like, Hey, give them where you break even. If that's 40%, if you can get 40%, like you're not going to break even realistically, you're discounting word of mouth that these people are doing, which is a ton. You're discounting the fact that this link is definitely missing attribution to sales that they're generating and the time window of it. Right. So whatever the time window is, they're generating sales there after that time window. So, and we're the biggest one is repeat purchasers. It's not taking into consideration them becoming repeat purchasers. Mm-hmm. It's not taking into consideration the lifetime value of that customer, just the average order value of the immediate purchase. So for all those reasons, I'm a big proponent, hot take, whatever you want to say, where you break even, I would give that percentage as a commission. You stand out because now they're going to be really incentivized to push you and your brand instead of the other you know, brands and affiliate programs that are offering 15%. So I would start there as the first touch point of payment. Thereafter, again, they proved to be a top performer there in the affiliate program as well as in paid media. Now we get to the upfront payments. We can dive into that too, but kind of probably stop there. I'm just thinking, walking through the process. So if, I, if I'm an 18-year-old tailor, and I'm like, okay, I'm going to get into influencer marketing and build a business around this. There's a lamp where I'm sitting right now. I'm like, I'm going to start Googling um, top selling lamp companies in my area. Oh, boom, Jim's lamps, they sell for $30 a piece or whatever. I want to help him grow through influencer marketing. I then messaged Jim. I said, hey, Jim, I want to help you get an extra 100% in sales in the next 60 days. He's like, great. And then I'm like, all right, Jim, all I ask is for like a 15% commission or you say 15% or 40% commission on sales. What I recommend giving to these influencers, wherever the brand breaks even on first purchase, again, quote unquote, break even. Oh, okay. So what I don't recommend doing is the standard like 15% market rate that t- that influencers typically get from brands. Oh, okay. So I'll go to Jim and then I'd say, hey, just so you know, the influencers we're going to work with, uh, we're going to pay them 40% of sales help you with your lamp sales essentially so is that is that correct so far it's more, it's more so just saying hey jim we're gonna pr- like pay out a percentage of sales where you technically are at break even on first purchase so whatever that is it's different for everyone based on the cogs and cost of delivery of the product taxes shipment and all all of the above but within mind you're actually not going to break even um yeah and just to try to position yourself in a way that incentivizes these influencers to post more where would I get paid? Because the influencer gets 40%. Obviously, Jim makes money off the lamps. Um, where do I get paid out of all that? We charge on just uh, flat fees. You're paying us for our labor. So I would average out your time you know, dedicated to these projects. Uh, we get mm-hmm. paid because we run paid media as well. So we get take, like a percentage of spend there. But for 
like running our seating campaigns, we're charging a flat fee. You know, you get a team of four uh, in the States, you get five to 10 contractors overseas. So you get 10 to 15 people on this thing, servicing you in this way to identify 500, handle communication with that 500, get the product out to these people, track organic posts, collect this content, get usage rights to that content, edit that content. And now we're going to launch into paid media. So it's getting a team to manage that process A through Z. You're paying us for the labor that goes into this um, for the cost of what it takes you to hire one employee to do it. Instead, you get 10 to 15 people to do it that live and breathe it every day. So I would charge on that because at the end of the day, if I'm giving advice to someone in my position, you don't know how well it, how well these campaigns do. It's not... Our, our philosophy, this is the best way to go about influencer marketing, in our opinion, to start relationships, to get the most bang for your buck. But it'll live and die by how good your product is at the end of the day. And so if it's a, for lack of a better word, shit product, like people aren't going to post about it. And so we, we're not going to be held reliable to how well your product converts when executing this this process, if you want the most you know bang for your buck and within the realm of influence marketing, we highly recommend going about it in this way. But we're not going to be tied to the performance that you get because of the product that you have. So I would not recommend it um, on the paid media side of things. Definitely recommend percentage of spend or you know percentage of revenue, whatever you guys are most comfortable with. But flat fees on the influencer side of things, without a doubt, and pay us for the time. Uh, taken to execute and the labor going into it. That's interesting too. So you get paid the same, whether they make a hundred dollars through yeah. this or whether they make a million dollars through all this. The brand that we scaled zero to a million and M&Ms, they paid us the exact same thing. Wow. <laughs> and the brands that didn't, and the brands that, you know, had uh, not the best of products and it didn't generate much sales at the end of the day, they all paid us the exact same. Interesting. And I mean, uh, so with the brands you work with, I mean, is it kind of like the venture capitalist world where they say like out of every 10 companies invested into, like there's only like one or two unicorns that really hit it out of the park or is everything pretty uh, profitable and scalable or what are your, based on your experience working with companies, like um, what are the quote unquote success rates to, or like, like you said too, like how about what, is, how can you tell whether a company has a good product or not? How do you vet them from that way? I mean, I think regardless, you're going to hit the minimums, right? Unless there's been one scenario, it's kind of the obvious scenario too. If you just put yourself in this frame of mind, like you're going to get 30 influencers posting 60 to 90 unique assets when you send out hundred products. Those are like the minimums. Like mm-hmm. we're doing this for Traeger right now. It's Traeger. It's a massive household name brand. People love Traeger. There's a lot of advocates out there that are like, if you get sent Traeger in the mail, free of cost, no strings attached, like you're pumped, right? Yeah. So their, their mm-hmm. post rates are a lot higher. They get way more than 30 influencers posting 60 to 90 assets when we send out 100 products. That's kind of the minimum. So that's a win, though, uh, in any in any scenario. If you get that many assets organically posted about you by genuine product adopters, that's a dub. The value, though, the immediate value in ROI comes from repurposing those 60 to 90 unique assets into paid media, where success rate, I'm, I'm appalled. I'm taken back if we don't outperform performance in the current status of that ad account when we implement 60 to 90 unique assets in there, which turns into well over 200 plus ads when you take into consideration all the iterations. That's 200 times like the amount of opportunities you have to find success in an ad account where creative is the number one variable to find success. So if an ad account that we take over, that we come alongside, is currently running like 20 pieces of creative, and then we come in and put in 200 more pieces of creative, we just 10x their opportunity to find success. So conversion rate of like finding greater success and increasing performance, I'm appalled when we don't, when that's the case. But the scenario, I'll give you like a failure story, the product that we came alongside and seeded with. And again, I would still recommend this approach though, if you care about influencers, a channel you want to find success in. It's a shirt that for men, like that made you look slimmer when you went to the gym. What guy's going to post about that? Not me. I'm not posting that. I'm not going into the gym at 24 and saying, hey, don't I look slim in this shirt while I work out? You know, yeah, it's you kind of like an obvious you. thing. Yeah. It's, an obvi- yeah. it's like an obvious one yeah. that probably won't work. Um, so we weren't able to make as big of a splash there. But again, you still should start the relationship in that way with people that you care about uh, that you ultimately want to be advocates of your of your product and your brand. 
you turn down clients by saying, sorry, your, your product, like we just don't, we don't, we don't want you to lose money working with us. Or how do you, how do you approach that? No, no, no. I, Cause they're not losing money. They're just not hitting those minimums. Right. Like mm-hmm. in that scenario, I think this person probably had like five influencers post 10 to 15 pieces of content. Yeah. It's just going about it to set proper expectations. But what I'll say is if they want to do the pay for post model to get five influencers to post, you know, 10 assets to 15 assets, that's still for them, especially when influencers are less, if it's a product that's like least less desirable to post about, their rates are going to be higher. So five influencers posting 10 to 15 assets could go from five grand to 10 grand. And we still got that through sending out you know, there's less opt-in to those kind of products. So we probably sent out 50 products. Still ends up being cheaper at the end of the day. Um, and again, they're genuine, they're authentic. So it's still the better option. It's just setting proper expectations and um, you're not going to get as many posts and like the Viagras of the world, right? Or <laughs> yeah. ED, erectile dysfunction. Like we used to, in the beginning, had a couple of those brands. It's just like, this is miserable. And back in the day, we would actually still try to, you know, do campaigns where we're paying people to post. You had to search far and wide to people even willing to take a lot of money to pay. So <laughs> it's still the better option, seating. You'll get it way more cost-effectively, save a lot more time and build genuine relationships. Interesting. So you guys will still work with anyone per se, even, but you let them know like the expectations up front, like, Hey, just, you know, like here's what to expect based on what we believe about your product. And then, yeah. uh, oh, home runs. I think you, I think you asked, I think you asked which products work best though. Home runs mm-hmm. in any, any product for, you know, where your customer, one of your customers is between, you know, it's a female between the ages of 25 and 40 home run. I mean, that not only is the number one customer in the world, right? Like the most buying power in the world, but that's the biggest pool of like quality content, content creators in the world too. So aligning your brand with that audience, with the, those types of influencers is a home run. So any products for that, for that is great. I would say consumables work really well. We see really high opt-in um, and really high numbers for post rates like beverage and food and beverage, um, consumables, uh, wearables, really easy to post. Like if they're wearing a shirt, wearing pants, wearing shoes, wearing sunglasses, earrings, jewelry, wearables are just easily like, Hey, let's take a selfie very organically, uh, natural to spontaneously post about it. Fitness equipment at home, fitness equipment does really well at home decor. I mean, you just kind of align it with what products are working really well in e-commerce in general. A lot of the time it's very similar. And when you're working with all these influencers and you're building these relationships, like, do you um, already have like a roster, like go to influencers who like love working with you? They're like, Taylor, please send me any and all products. And I promise I'll post like, and is that part of your negotiating when you're working with possible brands and stuff? Um, t- tell us about like the, um, those influence relationships that are built and how you, how you leverage those even after you work with them. <laughs> yeah. Uh- we actually put a like planner flag in somewhat of an opposite message that we're articulating. So a lot of time we actually say it's kind of a red flag when uh, someone that specializes in influencer marketing says they have a talent roster. Why is that a red flag? The reason that's a red flag is the conflict of interest. I'm not going, I'm no longer going after who's best for your brand. I'm pushing who's best for my talent roster and who can get me a commission. It kind of goes back to my athletes first days. If someone was like, you know, Pepsi comes to us from Procter and Gamble or not Procter and Gamble from Pepsi, whatever they come and say, Hey, we want to work with five NFL players. I'm not pitching the best fit for them uh, across the entire NFL. I'm pitching the NFL players that I represent mm-hmm. um, to try to get them in their campaign. So it's, it's a red flag. It's a conflict of interest. So, have we worked with hundred, like literally over a hundred thousand influencers? Yes. We built relationships for brands with over a hundred thousand influencers. We were working with 30 clients and we identify and reach out to 500 per month. So it's over 10,000 per month. And those are just whoever the best fit for that brand is uh, at that time. So on the, you know, kickoff calls of brands, we're going after, you know, who is your customer? What's the quantitative data around that? Let's go find 500 influencers that align with that best. Now, is that to say, you know, there aren't some repeat people within it. Sure. But only if it completely mits the, like aligns with the brand criteria. And it's honestly by accident. We don't have like this side set of people 
this person posted about this brand. And they said, anytime we see them, they'll post about it. Cause that's just, it's going against what we preach at the end of the day. That's inauthentic. They are just posting because we're sending them product. It becomes transactional at that point. Right. So no, in short, we don't do that. Interesting. No, I, and I, just so you know, I, I do like these uh, long-winded answers just because it helps us break down <laughs> everything. And, and uh, going backwards again, tell us the the story of like getting like your first client um, and then being able to scale to now working with 30 clients at a time. That, that's incredible. Like, did it take five months to get your first client and then two years to get three clients? Like, to, what's that journey been like? Yeah. Uh, well, going back to the beginning, Again, sort of lucked into this with Common Thread Collective seed funding us. In the very beginning, we were able to get clients from Common Thread. So mm-hmm. they would throw us clients, helped us get our start. So not only did they seed fund us, but they you know, gave us our first set of clients to work with to get our feet wet. But for the first year, it's survival mode still. At the end of the day, we're only going to get so much. Uh, we're only get fed so much by uh, the people that's helped us get our launch. So for the first month, it was very much so survival mode. And just, you know, looking at our cash flow forecast a month out and be like, oh, well, we only got one more month of revenue before we die here. So I would say, to be honest, COVID, COVID hit. It was a terrible time, obviously, uh, for so many. But within our line of work, we were fortunate enough to benefit from it, where it definitely expedited e-commerce taking off 10x, you know, and where e-commerce takes off, influencer marketing takes off. So that really benefited us. It skyrocketed our business. Then... You know, a year and a half ago, we hired employee one. A couple of months after that, we hired employee two. Three months after that, we, you know, created our first team of four. Now we have teams of four to service clients. And then January this year, we hired our second team of four, hired a, like someone for sales. And now we have two teams of four, salesperson, my partner and I, team of 11. So that's kind of been the journey, but definitely a long road to, uh, from survival mode to being in where we're at today. Yeah. And how did you learn? Sorry, what's it called? Growth Thread Collective? Uh, Common Thread Collective. Common Thread Collective. So are they still actively involved in your guys' business with like mentorship and, and helping out and referring clients even? Uh, great question. Actively involved? No, not as a company. Uh, they were just, their involvement it was just seed funding us. Uh, referring clients? No. Um, it was very much so just very much in the beginning. Do we have a couple shared clients time here and there? Sure. Um, but it's not like they're not a pipeline for us by any means. Um, that said, uh, the managing partner at common thread, my biggest mentor for sure, Taylor holiday, without a doubt. Um, and I'm in consistent conversation with him and communication with him, but he's like a a member of our board per se. And we go to him for counsel and just life in general. I'm a big uh, proponent of mentors and he's one of my biggest ones. So in that way, there's a lot of involvement. Cause I was going to ask, how do you know what, activities and roles you need to be doing and thinking about each day versus what you need to hire first uh, versus what you need to start allocating and when to start doing that. Like, how do you, how'd you figure out that sequence to know, okay, so now it's us two together. Now we got to hire this person so I can only focus on this. And I'm curious yeah. about that. That's good. Yeah. Still figuring it out. Right. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> I think that's uh that's the, the million dollar question for an entrepreneur because you're not reporting to someone that's telling you this is where your time needs to go and mm-hmm. this is what you need to get done. You're the one determining that from the top down. What are our yearly goals? Okay, from my yearly goals, what's our six month goal? What's our three month goal? Our month goal, weekly, daily, you know, going from starting with the end in mind uh, and working your way backwards and reverse engineering that. And then you have to be responsible doing every member of your team. How does that, you know, work towards? the overarching goal, you're the one determining that um, and how you allocate people towards those tasks and how you allocate time and resources towards those tasks. That's hard. Uh, I'm not going to sit here and say it's easy. I think I just gave you the framework that I work off of uh, mm-hmm. a little bit and how I go about resolving it. But hiring wise, we knew right away, I'll give you the first hire. My partner and I, we have to detach ourselves at some point from the client delivery, like the service delivery in the day-to-day weeds. Otherwise, there's never gonna, we're never going to be able to grow this. If we had the vision of, hey, we just want it to be me and Cody, we're doing influencer marketing campaigns for a couple clients, and we're like almost freelancers, partner freelancers, 
Sure, that's the approach. But if you want to grow a business, you need to remove yourself from the client delivery uh, service, be able to grow the business, be able to hire for the business. Those are the become the biggest two things, growing the business from a sales perspective and hiring for the business to put the parts in place to service the client service delivery. So a lot of our time was removed from client service delivery. We hired for that team of four and started with one person servicing it. Very overwhelming, obviously. Went to two, still very overwhelming. Went to four, perfect harmony, great. But that was that's what enabled us to eliminate fires, have you know, you know, quality control. It was a great service. There, no one was overwhelmed. We were at, you know, wasn't getting to capacity at bandwidth and it allowed Cody and I to go grow the business at that point. Yeah, and, and it sounds like uh yeah, it sounds like I guess like that experience process is just trial and error, and just like oh my gosh, we have a bunch of new For clients, sure. I can't do this on our own. <laughs> like we got to hire someone, is. and then cross your finger that that new hire is a good enough fit for the long term and short term kind of thing. For sure, yeah. lots of trial and error. Yeah, and and uh, going back in your story too, is there any? Um, obviously, entrepreneurship is not an easy road. Um, mm. What is that that driving force that inspires you to stay resilient, be a problem solver? push through the tough times, like um, it, it, what do you think helps contribute to that, that mindset and that um, attitude that you bring to the table? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, for me, I can't see it any other way. I think once you get a taste of it as well, while you're your own boss, you're, you're casting the vision for the company and this is becoming your baby. Um, like I can't imagine going to an office nine to five working for somebody else. So if you have an opportunity, if you have an idea, take it. I mean, for me again, as well, like I was 24 uh, at the time and you're going to get a skill set that no one else has. So if you're young, especially like, why not? Your resume is going to look way better by going and trying to fail at a business than that next, next opportunity at whatever it is. Uh, you're going to learn way more. It's going to look better on your resume, all the above. And realistically, Anybody listen to this? I, I don't know where your audience is, but if you're in the United States, like we are part of the one percent, um, you have a safety net to a certain degree. Um, I don't want to speak for everyone too much. I hope that's not offensive, but you can't. If you want to do this, take the jump, take the leap. Don't be scared. Try and fail. Worst case scenario, you go and have to apply to other jobs, but your resume does look a little bit sweeter when someone has applied to a job at Kinship and they have experience of going and trying and failing at launching a business. Those guys jump to the top. Without a doubt, I want to hear about that experience because um, it's valuable. We're a startup ourselves, so we're a small company. If they understand what that looks like, that's that's a leg up on the competition. So I would say go do it, even if you think you might fail. And obviously with entrepreneurship too, the journey is lots of highs and lows. Is there any moments for you so far that you're like, oh, we, we've made it. Like uh, we finally, uh, finance we want to be at, um, consistency of clients we want to be at. Like, is there any moments where you're like um, sipping champagne in a penthouse suite overlooking a city and you're like, oh, we, we did it kind of thing is, yeah, what's yeah. that moment been like in your, in your business or when you had that feeling of fulfillment and then satisfaction essentially? Yeah. I mean, there's different types, right? There's like when we signed M&Ms, like this massive household name brand, and we won an award for best use of new channel on TikTok through our campaign with them through uh, M&Ms and Influencer. One, just signing them and then winning an award uh, for the campaign we executed for them was like, whoa, that's pretty cool. Because the majority of the brands we are working with are like, you know, 5 million to 30 million D2C e-commerce brand. So not small direct to consumer. So that's where a majority of the brands are not like M&M's is a billion dollar brand. So that's like kind of the flex one, but it's real. Like that was, whoa, that's pretty neat. Another one was when we generated a million in revenue in a year, that was like a big moment. My partner and I went and got out and like had a tomahawk steak for the first time ever. We're big on celebrating for sure. Um, But I would say like the biggest ones are just seeing your employees grow. Um, I'm a big proponent of like, I'm looking for who's the hardest worker, who's the most eager to learn, who's humble and who's looking to be a sponge and just, just loves the grind. And they're looking just to learn seeing those people come in with like even no experience because we're an influencer marketing, right? It's a new space and we do things differently than a majority of the space. So I just want people that are ready to work that are eager to learn and are hungry. And so seeing those people, even if they don't have many like 
much background experience in marketing or what it is we do, seeing those people become and get elevated within the walls of kinship um, is really cool. So the people that we hire a lot of the time, like they're former teachers or they come from a different background and then seeing them come what they, what they ultimately do become is pretty neat. Yeah. Is there a favorite question you like to ask people in the interview process to help um, vet them and see that they're a good fit for the company? I typically ask people, this is one of them comes to mind, but a lot of the questions are geared towards those saying like trying to get a better understanding. Are you eager to learn? Are you humble? Are you a hard worker? One question that can stump a lot of people and it's very telling is like, Hey, when was the last time you, you know, deferred credit, like where you deserve credit, but you gave it to somebody else. And just hearing people's answers or seeing like the delay, how long do they need to think about this to try to find something to say here? It's very telling. And so that will quickly tell you like, how, how much of a teammate they are, because we work in teams of four, how much of a teammate are they are, how you know good would they be to work with, and are they humble at the end of the day? So uh, that's a question that can be very telling that I enjoy uh, hearing people speak on. I love it. I love it. And then uh, congratulations, by the way, on reaching that seven-figure revenue for a year. That, that's, uh, that's definitely oh, a very big deal. <laughs> What does it take to go from a five-figure business to a six-figure to a seven-figure business? For those listening, I'm sure they're like, how do I do this? Delegation. Biggest thing, for sure. Let go of the wheel. You're going to struggle with... I think that's that's for sure the biggest thing. And the biggest struggle is thinking, I can, I'm can. i the only one that can do this. That's a crutch. That's a lie. Um, if anything, that's your own fear saying you're not a good enough teacher to offboard this to somebody else. That's the fear there. Uh, and it can be real and you need to work on that, but figuring out, putting in place, what is the process A through Z, writing out like SOPs, like standardized operating procedures, like checklists for tasks. Like what did you, how do you service your client? What is everything A through Z? What are you doing? How can you get this offboarded? Anything that you're spending time with, you should be thinking about how could I offboard this and ultimately doing so. And that's kind of like the flow of an entrepreneur, right? You do the important tasks, you build out a flow, you offboard it rinse to repeat next thing what's most important you need to get in the habit of doing that we well, yeah, what, what kind of tools and uh do you use for sops and, and stuff like that it's a great question right now it's kind of like in google sheets uh we're trans we're transitioning out of that though and i'll have to keep you posted on it but right now just google sheets interesting nice nice and simple huh <laughs> big google sheets guy yeah even for crm tracking as well Depending what the CRM is, like we have CRMs for influencer, like internal for our campaigns and whatnot. And then we have like HubSpot for CRM for sales. So we have different CRMs for those sorts of things and SOPs like input into those. But where there isn't a platform just for like any and all procedures, Google, like the G Suite docs and sheets will be the go-to. Gotcha. And then uh, I'm curious too, I'd love to hear the story of how you got on LeBron James finger. Was that, uh, he, he just happened to be one of the influencers who said yes to selling the free product or what, what's, what's that story? Yeah, that's good. So my partner was actually at uh, all-star weekend, my partner, Cody, and it was actually on behalf of the brand that he used to work for at Kalo, uh, was at all-star weekend, uh, the NBA all-star weekend. And he built a relationship with Isaiah Thomas. So for those who don't know the NBA, uh, you may know who Isaiah Thomas is. He had a couple of the old one old one. So he had a couple okay. years where he was an all-star. Oh wait, no, not super new one. I guess he's old now though. Not, not the Pistons, Isaiah Thomas, the Isaiah it's Thomas not, that just had like a quick stint on the Lakers, but it's like basically retired. Uh, gotcha, like your five, four or five, eight or whatever. Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah okay. exactly. Mm-hmm. So he was on the Cavs at the time. He was LeBron James teammate and he was a fan of Kalo. He was one of the guys that they had built a relationship with through seating. And so he just saw him at the All-Star Weekend and he basically just gave him like, here's a box of Kalo rings if you want to pass it out to friends. And so it was basically like a locker room drop. Then Isaiah Thomas passed it out to everybody on the Cavs, all his teammates. LeBron James started wearing one. They saw that, hey, this guy's actually talking about it and he's wearing it. Or he's not like talking about it, but hey, they can see in his stories, this guy's wearing a Kalo silicone wedding ring. Oh my goodness built a custom ring for him specifically, like James gang, Kalo ring, made it super custom for him, sent it out to him. And then he was wearing it literally on the day when he signed with the Lakers. Like it, it just became a very organic thing all through seating, but it was like a, a roundabout way. And we have different stories like that too, with 
like uh, with another brand, Animal House Fitness, the people we scaled zero to a million. Joe Rogan's organically talked on his podcast about Animal House Fitness four times for free because one of the influencers we started a relationship with through seating ended up talking about it. Joe Rogan follows this guy. He's on Joe Rogan's podcast. And now Joe Rogan's a massive fan of this brand talking about it for free organically just because seating ultimately got and touched him as like a greater sphere of influence from those efforts. So there's a bunch of those stories, but that's how LeBron James happened. Joe Rogan's another one of those stories, but there, uh, there's more for sure. Yeah. And that's so fascinating that uh, I love your tagline, your website that we measure our success based on sales, not on likes. And, and so you track all those sales through reversion and you make sure, and obviously influencers in a certain niche are going to talk about a product people are eager to buy all the time anyways that's why you can pretty much quote-unquote guarantee sales because why wouldn't they buy from their favorite influencer or product that makes sense essentially right yeah a majority of the time when we're saying we're judged on sales and not likes those sales are coming from paid media yes 100 percent track your sales on the organic side of things from affiliate mm. but Again, organic is only going to give you so much ROI. If someone comes in and talks to you and tries to pitch you as a brand, now they're going to make you all this money off this person posting product and it's going to get a 4X run because that happens from time to time. I'm not saying it doesn't happen, but that's just not what these platforms are set up to do on the organic side of things. They're not set to optimize for conversions. They're set to optimize for engagement, for likes, for views, for impressions, those sorts of things. When we say we are judged on sales, not likes, that's from repurposing that content into paid media where we can have very clear visibility into, you know, what is this actually generating uh, ROI-wise and revenue-wise, sales-wise for the business? Um, and again, it goes back to we view the biggest value add of influencers being content creators and the content that we're repurposing into paid media. Well, that makes sense. Very interesting. Um and then uh, the other question I had was, how do you make sure to consistently surround yourself with the right people to uh, motivate you, keep you humble, keep you confident? I think I've heard like the three different people or two different people spend time with. Those are the people who like are similar level of you people and people who are like one step above you and then like yeah. two steps above you. Um, curious your philosophy approach to how you cultivate your circle, I should say. Yeah, very similar uh, to that line of thought. Um, find people that are five, 10 years ahead of you. And again, very fortunate to have uh, Taylor Holiday, Common Thread Collective in my life. He runs an agency that is about five years ahead of us. So being able to consistently meet with him is a massive benefit. And if you can find someone that you aspire to uh, pursue a similar path, um, 100% get that person in your circle, pay to go to lunch with them, pay to bring a coffee, make it as seamless as possible for that person to meet with you. They're the one providing you with value. Find those people. A great way to find those people, I would say, is honestly Twitter. It's how Andrew and I connected. Twitter has been an incredible place to network with incredibly bright minds um, and get connected with people. I would say far more than honestly LinkedIn at this point, especially within the e-commerce space. It's just a hotbed with just bright minds. So I would just message people, see if they would want to hop on talk shop just to get to know one another. A lot of people are actively looking to do that. Find people that are at the same stage of you, you know, that you're shoulder to shoulder with that you can just respect in their opinion. It may not be someone that's like pouring into you and like is your mentor, but hey, someone that's at the same stage of life as you at the same stage of business as you invaluable to hear what they're going through and share what you're going through, how you guys are counteracting problems, issues, overcoming. And then I would highly recommend getting mentees as well. Who are you pouring into? Um, big proponent of being generous with your time um, and giving back and pouring into to people that are up and coming. Because that's what it's all about, right? If someone's going to do it for it. me, you got to do it for someone else. But yeah. So I guess that's a third level is uh, people who are quote unquote, not at your um, professional level yet to help mentor them and, and pay it forward essentially. So um, yeah. I, I love that. Like, are you, are you signing up for any programs the way you do that? Are you just, are just kind of based on who reaches out to you or how do you get mentees? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm actually looking for kind of the next set. In the past, it's just been connected from people. This guy's learning, trying to learn how to go about this. Would you be willing to meet with them? And just being intentional about building a longer-term relationship outside of that like one-off meeting. Twitter, again, another place. There's a bunch of people always looking to learn. Um, so that's been a great place for me to connect with people. 
who are interested in what it is we do here at Kinship. Honestly, the last person that I mentored, uh, we actually ended up hiring the person. So <laughs> I didn't definitely wow. didn't go in with that intention. It just happened by happenstance. Um, but I was like, well, you really know exactly what it is we do and how we do it. And we've been doing this for six months. We just had this job opening. So it ended up playing out that way um, the last time around. Got to be more intentional about finding these people on Twitter is a great place to do it. No, 100%. And like you mentioned too, I love how we connected on Twitter and just uh, yeah. forge that relationship and have that shared experience. So a few questions left here. What do you think are the non-negotiables, <laughs> either mindsets or actions um, in order to be a successful entrepreneur? Mindset, get used to know, um, not get used to it in the sense of like, um, knows okay or knows acceptable. Um, Cause you need to actually have that grit to like, get them to say yes and push back against no's, uh, but more so just like emotionally detach yourself from no's. You're going to get a lot of them, especially in the beginning. Um, so it's just all about reps. Get another rep, get another rep. Don't sit sulk and like sit and like, Oh my gosh, they said no. And not just counting like your emotions, but if you're going to be successful, you need to get used to rejection. You got to get used to failure. Failure is definitely the birthplace of success. Like you're going to fail a lot more than, that successful point. I mean, and that's probably the most oversaturated like line, but it's true. Like you need to be willing to fail. You're going to fail trial and error, throw yourself in the fire, figure out what works because it's going to be a lot of that. And that's got to be the mindset. hundred percent. And then as a successful entrepreneur, like what gets you out of bed every morning? Like what's your mission and vision statement that gets you like fired up about each day? Yeah. Mission statement of kinship is we exist to create belonging. So each story is celebrated. So honestly, I see that a lot of the time with our employees. So my, our employees really is what gets me up and going. Obviously the clients and like finding success for clients, that's like intoxicating for sure. Like that's fun, but what keeps you going and casting vision for the future? Ultimately, I'm going to become, I'm not going to know what's going on with clients. Ultimately, like if we get to where we want to go, partners won't have the bandwidth to understand that client is currently doing this. So that can't be what gets me going. And what it really does and what's the most fulfilling is employees, employee growth, seeing and identifying their gifts and talents and extracting them and amplifying them. And then if people were listening to this whole interview, what would be the one takeaway you want them to have um, based on the things that we've talked about? Well, let me just ask you this question. Audience wise, it sounds like majority of the time the audience is upcoming and aspiring entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Right. Yeah. If that's the case, biggest thing to take away, go for it. I would say if you have the opportunity, if you have the idea, go for it. Don't be scared to fail. Worst case scenario, it doesn't work. That experience is invaluable and will look good on a resume. And honestly, if you fail, come apply for kinship. If you need the money, well, like, that, that, that looks good to people that are hiring. I know that for certain, for a lot of people, I would rather take that than a master's degree from somewhere. That could be controversial. Mm-hmm. That can be a hot take, but you have live experience. That person does not. Uh, and they're learning from someone that a majority of the time doesn't have live experience and it's outdated experience probably in this, the current ecosystem that we, we're living in. So don't be afraid Go and do it. And if you find success, just know you're going to fail a lot. Continue to fail. You're getting closer to, to winning. So go for it. Fail. You'll ultimately win one way or another. Well, and, uh, and speaking of master's degrees, so you, I think you did end up graduating from UCLA. I did. Yeah. Like, uh, like let's see, I guess uh, master's in marketing, minor in business. I didn't get my master's. No. So it's I also mean, biased. Uh, Bachelor's in uh, marketing and minor in business. (laughs) So I actually was planning on going to law school because my initial path was become an agent in the NFL. That's where I started on the NFL marketing side of things. So all my internships throughout college were on the marketing side of things because the perfect dynamic for an NFL agent is marketing, but schooling is law. Uh, So I was a political science major, but all my jobs were marketing roles because that was kind of like the perfect mixture for pursuing that. But then it was just, I hated it. Um, and just kept pursuing marketing and that's where we ended up today. No, that's so interesting. Cause like, I know, yeah, the, the topic of college keeps being like a hotter and hotter topic. Like, is it worth it? Do I really need to go? Do I need to spend all this money where I'm sure you would say, well, if you took that 
you know, 100 grand or 200 grand and put it towards business mentorship or online courses, how to get rich, like it's probably better well spent. But at the same time, so it's like your college connections also really propelled you forward a oh, lot too. A without a doubt. Um, so I'm curious your overall thoughts on college and, and things like that. Obviously, UCLA is a very good college to go to and get into. So I'm sure that helped too. But just curious what you would tell aspiring college students or current college students about how to best approach college professionally. This is a zone podcast. Uh, <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> I'll say this. I'm looking to build a pipeline of hiring out of high school. So I'd rather get my hands on people earlier and mold the way that they're thinking about these sorts of things earlier. Um, like I'm looking at your last, where you worked last. What did you do there in comparison to what did you major in? I'm personally giving you what I'm looking at. This is very subjective. This is very different than a lot of people. Sure. But like even I'm thinking about, I'm getting married in August and then, you know, oh, congrats. thank you. Thank you. But then you start thinking about your family, your kids. And I'm very much so one like the biggest thing that I'm going to have my kids do is I'm just going to send them to internships where they're actually doing things too. It's not like checking a box. I got a good internship. That's I'm thinking about that way more than where do I want them to go to college? Obviously if you're coming to a doctor or something like that, like higher education is a must, but for business, I'm thinking internships way more than education. Where are they getting live experience of running a business? School didn't even teach you how to write a check, like on the football team. It was unbelievable. We didn't leave college and our football team. They don't, you don't know what a 401k is. You don't know what all these sorts of how to write a check. They don't teach you these basic things. It's unbelievable. It's not tangible, real live experience. So you're getting probably one side of the spectrum. You're not probably, you are, but I'm just showing you what I value more. It's just live experience. I want to know where you did, where you worked. What did you do last? Why, why does it a fit for me as an employer at Kinship? And a lot of time that's no one learns influencer marketing in college right now. It's not a thing. Really? I'm surprised it's not a, uh, there, there's a couple, class. there's a couple okay. like extracurricular yeah. <laughs> like courses. Yeah. Um, but it's not like it's very high level. It's a lot of not other things that we even like believe in. So it's outdated to, Yeah. What they're learning there is not what we're doing here. So it's just not an alignment. Yeah. And, and uh, that's definitely something that I wish I had learned earlier too about the college experience is that understanding that it's not about what you learn in college, unless of course it applies to what you want to do, but learning how to learn, like how to, what works, how to best. Yes. Um, that's, that's very true. Learning how to learn. Yeah. That's 100% true. But can you do that elsewhere where you're learning something more valuable? But I, I 100% say that about my time. You say I learned how to learn. And I learned yes. how to work 100%. And, uh, and, and learning how to network too. I mean, um, my buddy, you know, he, he went to elite uh, music school. And because he networked with uh, some of the top music engineer professors, he got a full-time job right out of college, uh, probably getting double, triple what most people are getting paid. And, and the answer is you can get it done after high school. But uh, I mean, but I guess my, my take on it would be, get as many scholarships as possible and choose a school that makes the most sense. Like, you know, I, I went to Oregon, we had the top advertising school in the country. So I'm like, all right, might as well advertise or might as well major in advertising. Um, but it doesn't mean I'm in the advertising field now, but it was good to learn from the best of the best and also make right. a lot of connections too. But I also agree too. You, you can't just waste a bunch of money and party and expect it to work out. For sure. I generally, I, if I map out the trajectory of my life, I would not be here today without UCLA. That's what got mm-hmm. me from point A to point B to point C to, to ultimate kinship. But I just think there, I just think the scoring system will look incredibly different in 20 years and there will be, there oh, needs yeah. to be different networking tools for people, which I think is already happening. Twitter, it's crazy. You can get a college education and meet more people on Twitter in a day than you would at school. And, you know, if you go about it the right way, um, I just think that needs, that's going to evolve and it will continue to evolve in incredible ways for people um, across the world to find opportunities. It's going to open up the talent pool as well, um, more and more as as it already has um, to people that uh, deserve to have the job and the position. So I'm interested to see what the future holds. It's ha- hard to honestly envision 20 years down the line for kids. Cause I think it's just going to look drastically different. 
Are you going to do uh, homeschool out of curiosity, or or do you think you might make your own school um, or private or private school, or any any thoughts about that? <laughs> so my fiance actually is a children's teacher, so we probably will oh. homeschool initially, but definitely want to get them into public schools, private schools, whatever it is at the time. Uh, I was a public school kid, so more so gearing towards that, but just get them acclimated and networking already. Uh, but probably initially homeschooling. That makes sense. All right. We have a couple questions left here. Um, Taylor, this has been amazing and insightful. Thank you so much for diving deep and not holding back on like saying, no, Andrew, this is actually what it takes. Here's what's worked for us. Here's what hasn't worked. Um, and thank you for sharing the numbers and how you go about things. If people are li- For people listening in, what's the best way they can contact you and get a hold of you and um, inquire about uh, you know businesses, mentorship, menteeship, uh, yeah. working with you, um, learning with you, hosting you? What's the best way to get a hold of you? Kinship.co, K-Y-N-S-H-I-P.co, company website. And then Twitter is another great resource as well. That's again, where Andrew and I were able to connect initially and, and talk shop. Um, but Taylor Lagasay on Twitter, my partner, Cody uh, Wittig is another great person to follow. Um, and is also on Twitter, but we're consistently putting out a lot of content there and checking DMs to connect with people. So yeah, those two places. Love it. And then, um, yeah, final question. Is there anything else you wish I had asked you about or any, any final parting thoughts that uh, you want to say to people looking for rapid results in their life? No, man. Uh, interesting to hear you went to Oregon, though. We were getting our ass waxed in football every year. <laughs> yeah. Yes, so, uh, we have football and track. Sometimes our basketball team does well. Peyton Pritchard yeah. uh, playing final years. right now. Yeah, exactly. You guys had some good years for sure. So you guys taxed my ass for a while there. Um, so <laughs> thanks. Thanks. But uh, no thanks to you on that front, I guess is my problem. <laughs> but no, it was great to be on, man. And I appreciate you having me. Um, no, you're very welcome. Well, this has been Taylor, everyone. Uh, make sure to check him out on Twitter and kinship.co. Definitely. I'm personally listening to this episode a few times with all the value drops that were offered. And with that said, we'll see you all next week. Cheers, everyone. That concludes another episode of Rapid Results. Remember to leave a review about something you learned so others can share the knowledge. Keep being unstoppable in your pursuit of the lifestyle freedom you desire. And we'll see you next week.